Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. My name is Rich Schmidt. We're here with Pedro Parra. It's March 8th, 2023. We're at the Atticus Hotel in McMinnville. And thank you to the Atticus for the use of their lovely space today. Pedro, thank you so much for joining us. I'm very happy to be here. First question to get you started is yeah. why wine? I don't know. Wine was kind of, uh, was not in my head, you know. Uh, my family is a family full of lawyers. So I didn't want to be a lawyer. And then I have no idea what what to do for some time. I was thinking to be like a musician. I was a young uh, saxophonist. And I also wanted to have the experience to live in, in another country. I was very lucky because uh, my school was the, a French school, Alliance Francaise, so I had the, the language. And that was a major help in my life because I had the chance to move to France. So. After doing, you know, college, I did forestry to be near the nature. I liked that. And uh, I had a chance to move to, to the south of France, to Montpellier, for doing a master. So I, I was, at the time, I was 27. And I had no idea what to do with my life. So the, that, that change was a breaking point for sure. And I spent like uh, 15 months or something like that doing my master. And during that master, I had to spend some time in the agronomical center of Paris. And in that uh, center, there was a professor, uh, Michel-Claude Girard, who was a fantastic, clever guy doing soil research for his entire career, who was working with uh, different students on Tewah. So that's how I I heard, I would say, for the first time the word terroir. Mm -hmm. And I understood more or less that there was a connection between the, the, the energy around, soil, weather, everything, and a product. In that case, wine. There are other connections with, you know, uh, olive oil and tomatoes and many different things, but that was wine. And that, the idea that you know a product was basically made from the site was very interesting to me. But I did some work with those people during two months that I was in Paris. I liked the idea, but nothing more than that. Mm -hmm. I came back home in Chile. I was working in the university, doing some research, and after two years, working there, uh, I got, you know, I, there was no clear direction on the university. I was still quite young and not happy with what can be a future, you know. Mm -hmm. I was already married, a wife, a kid, and uh, somehow I remember having a discussion with a very good friend of mine who lives in Chicago now, Chilean guy, who told me you should go for a PhD. And I said, PhD is difficult, you know? I mean, it's not a master. It's supposed to be for super intelligent people, and it's, you are 
So he's a PhD, a professor in the university in Chicago. Uh, I'm not. So I said, no, you should do it, you know, like, you know, football team. <laughs> do it, do it. And that conversation, you know, put some kind of a, an idea, a virus in my head, you know, maybe, why not? I talked to my wife, you know, you need to move again from another country. In the first time I was alone, now my wife and, and my son. So she said to me, yeah, if, if we can do it, we will move, of course, it's for the future. So I reached back to my professor in Paris, uh, Michel Claude, and said, you know, I would be very happy and very interested if you are interested as well in doing a PhD and on terroir. Maybe, you know, you, you can help me on that, you know, and that's how everything started. So I was lucky, I got a grant from the French government. The first one was also the French government. So the Chilean government, uh, nothing, you know. So I owe French people a lot. And, um, and so in one day we were in a plane to Paris. Uh, my wife, my kid, myself, and um, that's it. So we were there in 2001 for four years of trying to do a PhD on terroir. And I had no idea what that means, you know. So I was completely, completely scared on the idea. And uh, that's how everything started, you know. So why wine? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, the, it's life that was bringing me to wine, to terroir. It was, it was never an idea, never an idea in my head, you know. And, and, and I think I was uh, very lucky, you know. My, my career has, has been so, so fun. And everything started from that day. So tell me about that. You're, you're, you're heading back to France. You don't really know what's going on. You're, you're kind of trepidatious about that next step. So tell me about those four years, about the education process and about yeah. what you did. You know, they were difficult. No, no, not difficult. They were, it's a challenge, you know, because it is not a manual. So you can read how to do a PhD. The expectations are different from, from my professor, from me, from the other people who was around. And, and the truth I learned on time, with some blood, I learned that uh, I think my personality was not really developed to be a classic PhD, you know? Classic PhD is somebody who get that, goes to university, get a job, and for the next 30 years will, will do research. I found that uh, boring, I would say, you know, to be sitting in an office for 30 years. It's not my personality. I have uh, energy, you know. Uh, and, and I think my, <clears throat> my professor got that after one year. And he said to me, Pedro, have two options, or we cancel that and you go back to your country, or we adapt your PhD to something that would be new for me, but maybe looking at you, your personality, that I think that can be an option. And that means more practical, less in the office, more in the vineyard, you know? Uh, because I think you have the potential to someday be a consultant. So that's the first time I heard the word consultant. So, I mean, 
And at, when he told me that was quite uh, bad news for me. He's basically saying to me, you're very stupid, so you cannot be research. You can go back to your house in Chile, or we can help you very kindly to do something that we professors hate, that is consulting, you know? He, the guy liked me a lot, and I really liked him. So the, that was a connection for sure there. And I talked to my wife again, what should we do? And Camila said, yeah, we should continue, you know? That's no problem on that. Your personality is different. You don't have the patience, you don't have the, the, the you know, the, the, the mathematical view of the problems. You are not like that. And so my professor said, okay, so take your things and to the vineyard. And that's how everything really started to me because uh, there is two very different worlds, you know, the, the real one. The real one is the liquid. And the research, mathematical, you know, world that is in the university, so far away from the reality. And uh, I didn't know that in the beginning. Of course, now I know very much. So I was, in two months, I was in Bordeaux, working in the vineyards, you know, talking to people. It's very different when you try to think what is terroir, which is a very a classical question, very large question. And the view you can have in the office, you know, with a coffee. And the real one when you talk to people, you know, in the vineyard, in the soil, when it's snowing like today, you know, it's, it's nothing compared to that. So it's, it's so different and they're so far away. And I like to talk, I like to listen very much. I'm very social in that way. So I was young and I was, I would say, virgin. So I was like an eponge, you know, a sponge, uh, learning from people. So the first trip was Bordeaux. And the second one, who again changed completely my career, my life, was in Burgundy. And that trip to Burgundy really was something that I didn't expect it because I knew very little about Burgundy. And I found the place beautiful, so different from Bordeaux. Uh, Bordeaux is very business-oriented. Uh, Burgundy is farmers. Uh, Bordeaux is more about, you know, it's a, I would say it's a lie, but you never know the real, real truth unless you are part of the community. In Burgundy, it's not a lie. It's very direct, it is what it is. This is a vineyard, this is a wine. Okay, and, and, and so I was really attached to that uh, concept, you know? And, and I was, again, you know, lucky. Lucky is a word that I would mention many times because I was lucky to meet one guy. He was a very young guy at that moment. I was young as well. Uh, in a place called Von Romane. I had no idea that Von Romane was a, a very important place in the wine world. But I was in Von Romane, I, I spent time with that guy. He was just taking the domain in his uh, hands. And I was just starting to be uh, somebody who understood terroir. And we, we talked a lot. We became friends on time, you know. And I learned from him, you know. The other day I was with him, I said, you know, how important you were in my career? He said, no, I have no idea about that. I said, you were. Because I had no idea how to taste wine. My first professional tasting was in your cellar. 
you took the whole morning to basically teach me. So you, maybe you don't remember that you were teaching somebody, but I was listening to that. We went through all the wines, and I have a very good memory. So I, I remember the words, you know, the meaning of the words. And so that day completely, you know, create, I would say, an initial palette, you know. That will be with me my whole career. That was the day number one. I, I used to call it my Ratatouille, like the movie. <laughs> you know, when you go back, Anthony goes back on time to, he's a kid with his mother. Uh, that was my Ratatouille. It was my first real professional day tasting wines in Von Romani. So, acidity, red fruit, vibrant, complexity, uh, reduction from the soil. In the palate, you get tension, acidity, minerality, finesse, you know. So that, that was a wine for me. After that, of, of course, working around you, 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 you know and you taste many other expressions of the wine. But that, that was the real one, the, the number one. Mm -hmm. It's like your first you know, date when you're a kid. And uh, that, that's how happened during four years in Paris. I was basically doing a PhD that was very, very technical, very practical, very conceptually, it was Burgundy, very Burgundian. And I finished that, I finished well, it was, was a good work, I would say. And I came back home, uh, ready for whatever. And the whatever was the only possibility in my head, you know, be a professor in the university. My mother was a lawyer professor, so that was, that means stability. You get a check every month, you know, and, and maybe you can travel sometimes, you know. So that was my idea. And I got back, I got a job. That was a, a good job. And after some months, I quit. It was too boring, you know. And I quit when one guy that I was in the university with me, who became an important winemaker in Chile, uh, met me and said, uh, I would love to have you as a consultant. So that was my first client back in 2003. And that's how everything started. How did you understand at that point what the role of, what your role would be as a consultant in that way? I had no idea. The, again, there is no uh, manual to say a consultant must, must, everything's new, you know. How you work, what you do, how you get paid, you really know nothing. So it's day by day, you're learning, then on time, you will meet other consultants, so you will understand more. But I would say my first three, four years, were kind of blind, you know, building something that was very new to me. You don't know nothing, how many times you need to work, how much money you can charge. It, it's another world that you don't know. You need to travel, you need to be far away from home. So that is something that also was uh, difficult because you, I want to be at home, you know. And, uh, and so was learning the wine world is so small, you know, at the end of the day, that good people knows good people. So at the end, I was working with that guy, it's called Marcelo Retamal, 
he had a friend. His friend was impressed of the way that Marcelo was talking and explaining things. So Marcelo said, it's my consultant from France. I was living in France, still, still in Paris. So I got contacted. That, that was my second client, Rodrigo Soto, who is now technical director in Quintessa in California. And then you get a third client, and then you have no idea. You have five clients, and then you need to sit and organize yourself because you have clients and you need to prove. I was, one, one problem was that I was young and my face was young, you know? So it's difficult to get respect from the owners when you look like a kid, basically. So I need to be, I need to prove that I was good enough to be a consultant with 32 years at the moment. The other consultants were all, you know, older guys, more. And me, I was a kid, you know, making cows around, you know, that, that. So it was great that he's from Paris. So for, for like two years in Chile, people got the idea that I was, I was French. They, and, and I don't live in the, in, in the capital in Santiago and I don't belong in the wine community. So I live in Concepcion alone. So who is that guy? That was basically for two, three years in Chile. Who is that guy? Never talked to the press, never talked to... So mm -hmm. there was a lot of mystery in the beginning of my career. So that's how it started. I will say that the work was extremely groundbreaking for Chile at the moment. The results were very good. So in 2006, everybody wanted to work with me. And, and that was so good for my career because uh, when I think back on time, that was like a laboratory for me. I, I had the chance to, to see so many things, so many uh, rocks, so many soils, so many different expressions of the weather, so many winemakers, viticulturists, so many wines, TPCTs, that I was learning super fast, you know? So that was really my, my lab, you know? I created like a, I think I created like a methodology, like a model, and at the same time, I, I got experience very fast, very fast. The problem my mother told me, you know, <clears throat> would be, uh, she, she told me, I'm very happy that you're happy, very happy that you're working, but do you know how many winers in Chile can have a consultant like you? Uh, so Chile are not many, uh, just for you to know. Uh, I think here in Oregon there are about 500 wineries or more. About a thousand now. A thousand now. Mm -hmm. In Chile there are 200 in the whole country. Very big. So the size is big, but 200 owners basically. So, and how many of those guys were open to a terroir approach? That was the. the top of the top of the pyramid. So in my experience, there were 20 potential clients in Chile. So that means you have worked for 10 years, maybe seven years max. And what do you do after that? So I was 33, uh, at 40 will be done. So there's no more work in my country. So I was always thinking on that and because <clears throat> Normally, I learn, in, in my case, you know, I, I always have like a 
plan E, A, B, C, D, you know, because things can, can go in different directions. So I, I think that's when I decide to prepare to, when this is going to happen, I will switch to a winery, you know. So if this happens, I will be prepared to start uh, my own wine project. So I always work it on parallel uh, lives, you know. Uh, so that's how I ended up being a, an owner. But what I didn't count at all was that outside of Chile, there are many winers. So when you think like a Chilean, Chilean is like an island, you know, it's like New Zealand. It's the Andes mountain range is so, so big. So you, if you don't have the opportunity to travel, you are completely isolated. So your mentality is what you get in an island. The world starts and ends in your country. So I never crossed my mind that somebody could be interested in working with me in another country. That is something that not happened in Chile. Nobody is looking for a Chilean consultant in the world. So that's why I never thought about that. And one day I met one of the most important people in my career, an Italian winemaker, consultant, it's called Alberto Antonini, and Alberto was working all around the world. He's still working all around the world. And so we met, we have a coffee together. He was an owner of a very prestigious winery in Argentina called Alto Las Hormigas, pioneering in Argentina with Michel Roland and a guy from US called Paul Hobbs. And he was very attached to the terroir concept. So we met, we liked each other through music, jazz, mm -hmm. so we both were very passionate on that. And Alberto invited me at the end of 2006 to Mendoza. And he set up like a seminar, you know, in a hotel. And many of his clients came. So I was in a room with 25 winemakers, you know. I did a seminar, then we have a beer and dinner, and I left the, the, the place with three clients immediately. And that's how I started to travel to Mendoza for work. In one year, I got 10 clients. So I spent 2007, 8, 9, 10 between Chile and Argentina. And in Argentina, you don't have 20 potential clients, you have maybe 50 potential clients. So I got, I was buying time, basically, you know, <laughs> in my career. Always with the idea, someday, the winery will be uh, required, you know. And, uh, but what I didn't count was that Alberto was planning to bring me to Italy. So he's Italian. In 2011, he invited me to collaborate with him in his winery in Tuscany. And this history repeats. In like in one year, I got like six clients in Italy, and boom. When you are in Italy, you are in France, you are in Spain, you are in the US, you are all around. So that's how, through Alberto, the world was open. You know, you are always insecure that who will want to know more about terroir, you know? And the truth is everybody. So I had, I had to learn 
to really adapt my work, my time as well, you know. Demand was very strong, but I could not live in a plane. You know, have a family, at that moment three kids. Uh, I was a happy guy in Chile. So I had to, to learn how to decide mm -hmm. uh, where to work, how to work, with who, you know. And it's difficult to decide that because normally people is gentle, you know. And you get this morning I got two mails from people from two different countries asking to contact for a potential work. I, I don't have time. So you know you need to learn how to answer back, you know, thank you very much, but for the moment I don't have more time. And um, and the truth is that Terror consultant, we are maybe three guys, four guys in the world. Three are French. French don't like to travel. They don't speak English. So at the end, I would say there's one French guy traveling and myself for the entire world. It's stupid at the end, you know. I don't know why other people are not uh, trying to develop a career on, on that. And. And so that's how life, you know, was rolling. And what was really fascinating to me is that when you go up in the pyramid in terms of quality of clients, quality of terroir, quality of wine, you met fantastic people, you know. And, and again, the wine, the wine world is so small. Everybody knows everybody. So at, at that moment, you are that this is very weird because you are consulting, teaching people, but you are learning from them, and you are drinking incredible wines, you know, atomic wines. So is you give, you get, and you learn. So at one moment, my head was like a dynamite. You know, I had so much experience, so much information that I was about to explode. And that's when I decided it's time to start my own project, you know, because I was, I think I was mature enough to make it. If you start too young, it's fun, but you will make many mistakes and you will spend a lot of money. And when you look back, you will feel so stupid. That happens so, so many times, you know. So I started the project in 2012. The first release was 2013, and uh, I was old enough, uh, 43, experienced enough to avoid 1,000 mistakes, you know. So, and I think it's also very important, you know, when, when you are more experienced, you know who you are. And, and when you know who you are, you know, you know what you like, and you know what to do, you know. So, there's a lot of bullshit in the one world. You know, people with money who want to experience these kind of things. Uh, young way makers that are, you know, want to experience everything. So this too much of that. But when you have a clear direction, you don't see very often the clear direction you know, all around the world. And it's because you need to be old to know who you are, what you like to drink, uh, how you want to do it, where you want to buy a vineyard or to plant a vineyard, you know, this kind of thing. So that was kind of resolved in my case. Not everything. I think I was 
In the beginning, I was kind of arrogant with myself, thinking I knew everything, and truth was that no. <laughs> so I had to be humble and recognize that my winemaking approach was very bad. You know, I had, I mean, I was, I, I learned from the best, but you can not because you learn from the best, you can apply to your reality. So that's a major problem. That is a, as a consultant, something that I work with with, with my clients. So, but that didn't apply to me. I, I would be happy to have Pedro, the consultant, talking to Pedro, the winemaker. You know, and that caused me. Uh, 13, 14, 15, 16 in terms of wine. Wines that it's difficult to me to drink today. Maybe you know the market, maybe they like it. The ones were selling well, even better than now because the ones were more rich, you know. But the only way that you do a great product is that you produce what you like. And I didn't like the result. So when you don't like what you produce, it's difficult to sell it because you don't convince the market, you know. And I knew I had to, to adapt, you know, and it's difficult to find a way to uh, adapt. Mm. So, and again, I was lucky again, you know, I got one, one client in Spain who was doing exactly what I wanted to do. So the one was, the one that they produced were the best, incredible. And with a very, very similar terroir, very similar view concept, you know. So, I started to work with them on 2015. We really became friends like 2017. When it's very different when you work with somebody and when you have the the I would say the the connection to talk longer, you know, takes time. Sometimes it never. Mm -hmm. So with these two guys in Spain that was 2017, we became very good friends. And when you become friends, you share and you are honest. And one night we were discussing, sharing information, sharing sentiments, you know, feelings. And um, that's how my wines came out, you know. So, and they were very honest. The wines are very good, but it's not you. So what is happening? I said, you know what I'm doing? Uh, I'm doing the wines like uh, Burgundian style. So I like Burgundy, so that is my ratatouille, so I, I vinify like that, blah, 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 everything. And they said to me, why you do that? I said, it's Burgundy. So I learned from the best winemakers in Burgundy. Yeah, but your terroir is not Burgundy. Your terroir is basically the opposite of Burgundy. So if, you're, uh, if you are a terroir guy, if you understand that, if you are, know that you are the opposite, what, why are you applying? Um, Burgundian metal. I mean, it sounds illogical. And they were right. They were right. So I, I basically, I, I tried to erase everything I learned in Burgundy, and I opened my mind to another approach to the wine. And it sounds easy. In the reality, is that it is easy, but you need to open your mind to that, you know? And now, <clears throat> I use that example a lot with my clients, you know, is, is if you want to cook an egg, you know, scrambled egg in the morning, sounds the most easy things in the world. But you are taking decisions. So you wake up, you take the eggs, you 
heat the, 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 how do you call that? Uh, the burner. The burner. Mm -hmm. You put the eggs, you add some salt, and it's ready. And you don't think that you're taking some decisions that are important. So the, the fire, the energy, can come from different things. You know, wood, electricity, gas, uh, this kind of electric radiance as well. Then you can decide where to scramble the eggs. There are different, you know, tanks. And then you also can decide uh, the volume of the heat. One, two, three, four, five, six. So if you do it at six, the scrambled egg will be done in 30 seconds. If you do it at one, in seven, eight minutes. It's a totally different product. Then you can also decide if you put water or if you put uh, olive oil or oil, you put salt or not. So those questions are the same in the winery. How do you want to heat? Do you want to heat the tanks? Yes. No. How? How long? So you're going to cook your eggs at six or one or three. Where? Uh, oak, standing still, concrete. Are you going to add something or not? Do you want salt in the wine or not? Uh, how are you, are you going to use olive oil or not? So it's super simple, but it's incredible. I have worked with 400 winemakers and 90% of them don't think on that. They take that as a general uh, check, you know? So my temperature is, you know, uh, gas. Salt, of course I use salt. And then I heat at five. Everybody heat at five in the world. So it's a recipe. And it's the same with the eggs. The, you have this, the 99% of the people will do a scrambled eggs in the same way. And maybe it's one percent, two, three, five percent that will think that there are other ways, you know? Very similar is how you cook uh, beef, you know, barbecue. So Francis Malman in Argentina understands all the process. So the way you put the energy, so the fire, is so important. So you have the importance of the origin of the eggs, the origin of the beef, the origin of the vines is the same. That's so important. But then you need to know how to do that. That's why the Argentinian asados are incredible because they know incredible. They know that more than in wine, you know. So that is a super interesting phenomenon. So this is the kind of things that you need to be soulful, you know, and understand. And to me, in my work as a consultant, is with respect, little by little, to the winemaker. How can you decide how to do your wines? If you don't understand or know your terroir, you are blind. You will for sure you're going to make a mistake. So to me it's not acceptable that somebody wants to make high-end wines without understanding the site, you know? Because you have reach you have two approach. Uh, one approach that is the new world approach. I don't care about the site. I went to the college you know, Davis, uh, Universidad Católica in Chile, whatever. 
say I'm God, give me whatever you want and I will cook the eggs and the wine will be incredible. That is new world approach. European approach is I know nothing. My father told me, his grandfather told me, I never went to the university and I understand that the site is everything. And I understand the site because my father did it, my grandfather did it, so I am very humble. That's why there are not winemakers in Europe. The word is not used, you know, in Europe. So you have two approaches, the site or the man. When the approach is the man, it's very egocentric. I control the nature. When the approach is the site, is I need to listen to the nature. Super different approach. And my school is Europe, so it's never about the winemaking, it's always about the site. And then the winemaker should be clever enough to listen to the site. I didn't do did it in my project in the beginning. I changed in 2017, and I'm very happy with the wines now. You know? And that is the switch. It's that, that is one of my most important advice to my clients you know, in the new world. In Europe, it's a different history. They know that. So my work in Europe is not the same work I do here in the US. So tell me about your approach then when, when you are working with, as a consultant, when you're working with someone else's space, how do you explore the terroir and then how do you explain the terroir to, to your client? So today, the first thing I do before working with somebody is to buy the wines, if I like the wines or not. More than the style of the wine that I don't really care is what I get in my palate, you know, the, the, if I like the, you can taste the site, you know. Mm -hmm. So if there is energy in my palate, I will immediately know, wow, that, that is a good terroir. So I, I'm curious, I want to work in that terroir because the wine has energy, has minerality. So that's step number one. Step number two, I will talk to my client, potential client by Zoom, you know, blah, 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 and then I will fly. And my step number one is always composed on two things. You know, visiting the vineyards to check the geology. So it's, it's very simple, you do holes and you look what is the geology that they have. And second, you go to the winery and you try to taste everything. Mm -hmm. So you can fine tune between the vineyard and, and the liquid, you know. And when you get that, that will take me one year of work. One year of work means four days, I normally, four <laughs> visits. No. Uh, when I get that, I know how to approach the second level of the situation, you know, how to fine tune the terroir. So, okay, we have one geology. That geology is the family of Mr. Johnson. The genetic of Mr. Johnson is basalt. And Mr. Johnson may have five different kids. So, how are the kids? One is a lawyer, the other one is an advocate, is a doctor, the other one is in jail. The other one, you know, is a chef, and the other one is, is a wife working in his house. You have five kids. So you approach the five kids in a different way to try to maximize what they can do. So the guy who is in jail, normally, many times there's no solution. The other guys, they, they, they will show atypicity. Mm -hmm. So when, when I know that Mr. Johnson has five kids, I will talk to the winemaker and to the viticulturist, you know. The viticulturist, do you treat every kid in a different way? Because they are different. 
So they don't learn in the same way. The viticulturist will say, uh, no, I treat everything in the same way. And I'll say, yeah, but the energy and the vigor and the vines are is different. So I think we should start to adapt that, you know. And then to the winemaker, do you vinify everything the same way? Yeah, of course. Say, why? You know, one is a doctor, the other one is a lawyer. They don't go to the same restaurant. One likes beer, the other one likes wine. They are different. So you potentially cannot treat, you know, two terroir in the same way. Because one, you may be doing very well, the other one, you will be killing it, you know. So that's like uh, stage number two. And stage number three is we are reaching, you know, the potentiality of the site. We are reaching the potentiality in, on the human uh, interpretation of the site. And now we are fine-tuning, you know. And fine-tuning is small steps that makes the wines better every year. And that fine-tuning time is very interesting because it's more about me learning about the site. So if I, am, I have the ability to understand more, I will have the ability to give them more ideas, you know. So the year number three is basically for me. Like Pedro, you have all the components, all the ingredients. We, we are doing well, but I think we can do better, you know. How? And it's me to think, you know, and to explore with, with your client, you explore. Uh, it's super funny because it's the last part and it's the real thing, you know, between having a great one or a very good wine. It's, 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 a, it's a difference. So normally that's how it happens, you know. I think if there's if there's anything that you're known for, it's it's for soil pits and the idea of, of of digging down into the terroir to really understand it. So tell me about how that came to be part of your understanding and what you look for when you're when you're digging into the soil. Of course, but I, I mean I am known for that, but that is the entry level of the problem. I mean, when you dig, is because you need to know if it's Mr. Johnson or is Mr. Oakley or Mr. Starks, you know? Mm -hmm. So you cannot have a direction if you don't know who is the father or the mother. So, so we dig to visit the family, basically. And when you visit the family, you go to the second step, which is way more interesting, is to interpret the family. So we have the Johnsons. How we approach the Johnsons? You know? Ah, they were both are from Philly. The mother is from New York, you know, and he likes basketball. The mother doesn't. He drinks too much. The mother is Catholic, you know. <laughs> uh, so, so that's how you approach a problem. So, the only way you do that is through the geology, through, through digging pits. Mm -hmm. So that's why I dig pits. People know me digging pits because they take the picture in the pit because it's more dramatic. <laughs> and but but digging is maybe 30% of, of my time, you know, as a consultant. For example, I've been now here in Oregon for six days. I have dig two days, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. The rest is crea creation, mm -hmm. uh, discussion, tasting. This one is super good, but when the year's warm, it's not that good. Why is that, you know? 2019, uh, I don't know, 
Stone Creek from Rosenau was incredible. 20 was the fire, we don't have 21. It's more rustic. Why is that? What we can do to try to avoid that problem? It's a problem in the vineyard. The soil is getting too dry. The pruning is not the good one. The winemaking was maybe a little extractive, too extractive. So my, my help is to give them open the brain and give them uh, options of curiosity. You know? How to read the weather? Because if the weather is dry and warm, the terroir is going to show this typicity. But if it's opposite, it's the other typicity. So you cannot winemake the wine in the same way. That means that we need a winemaker who is connected with the weather and is connected with the soil. I need a winemaker to dig soil pits, even if I am not there, you know, near the, near the harvest, to check if he feels it's too dry, there is some stress. Some stress means potentially hard tannins, dry tannins. So you know that in advance. It's a great thing that you know. And this block is more sensitive to that, to this other block. So this block, I am worried. But you know that before. So you prepare yourself in the winery for that day. And you will adapt yourself to that. So minimal extraction, lower temperature, you know, for that day, for that side. That is a great way maker. It's somebody using the brain, you know, we have brains, so we should use it. <laughs> so, but to use it, you need to know the site. Because you know the site, you know that that part of the vineyard can have that, you know. When people approach you to consider you, consider hiring you as a consultant, do you, they generally have a pretty good idea of what you're going to do, or do they think that you're going to fix their problems? No, they know nothing. <laughs> so normally people, people when they approach me is by other people telling, you know. Uh, you should talk to that guy. And they know I dig, so they think that through digging pits, we're going to prove everything. And, and so they have in mind a soil expert. That happens now, less. But for this is my 21 year of career, for 17 years, is the soil guy is coming, <laughs> and he's going to fix. You know, then they get to know me. So they get to know that I love wine, I drink wine. I know the wines of the world. I know the problems of the wines of the world. I do wine, so I know wine making. Uh, I know how to farm. I mean, so they, they little by little, they get to know me as a more holistic uh, person. Mm -hmm. And not everybody understand that, but some more, more and more on time. And when they understand that. My, it's important to me that they understand that because the role as our consultant changes. They understand that it's not going to be all the time in the pits. It's what you do with the pits what is important, you know? So the soil guy is going to come here, do a soil pit, and let you know you have this. Bye bye, ciao. And that is useless. 
It's what you do with your feet is what is important. And so now more and more, more and more in the last five years, you know, people understand that. So now I have like a different kind of client. They know me that I am holistic. And again, as I told you, Rich, it's a very small wine world. So everybody knows everybody. Tell me about um, how you got introduced to Oregon. That was a funny, it's a funny history because there was uh, that friend of mine from Burgundy, my Ratatouille, Louis Michel Gebeler. And Louis Michel was hired by Mark Tarloff to create, at that moment, the project Chapter 24. And that was around 2012, I think. And Louis Michel was telling Mark, you know, we need the beginning. The beginning is the terroir. So without knowing the terroir, uh, we know nothing. That was the message from Louis Michel to Mark. Louis Michel was very critical about the quality on the Pinot Noir in the valley. And I think he was kind of right, you know. Uh, people was, were farmer, farmers, and they were, they, there were many of them using like a recipe to make many Pinot Noirs. So there was not yet uh, uh, a window to explore another way of interpretation. And I think Mark and Louis Michel were instrumental on, on that. Now it's changing, for sure. Yesterday I was uh, tasting with uh, Chris Herman at W0. Mm -hmm. And Chris told me something. They, Chris and Mark were very good friends. Chris told me something that I, something that I like very much. It's the, it's the Mark Tarlow tree, you know? And when you pay attention, you look, it's Walter Scott, it's W0, it's Rose and Arrow, it's Lingua Franca, it's the top of the top of Oregon. So that won't happen without one guy who is clever enough to create that. And that Mark, one day he's from New York, so he, he's not very much like here in, in Oregon. But one day, people will need to recognize you know, that Oregon changed because of a New Yorker. Um, and so Louis Michel was here asking for Mark to, to have this terror consultant here. And Mark was, no, we don't need him. I have you. And that was for 13, 14. So Louis Michel always was sending a message where we will get done that. And I wanted to do that, you know, because Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. And finally, in 2015, I think, um, there were two big changes. Change number one was the, the Australian winemaker that was doing his job here uh, was let go. They need that winemaker. And uh, Louis Michel was looking for somebody good, French-speaking, European sensibility, hard work. And there are not many. And one candidate was from Chile, a friend of mine, and who worked with Louis Michel. So Louis Michel knew him, Felipe Ramirez, who is today the winemaker. So Mark was not very high on that because Chilean, Chilean, yeah. But he listened to Louis Michel, Felipe came, and there was a big change. Mm -hmm. And on time, little by little, Mark and Felipe became inseparable. You know? 
And with Felipe here, and Lorichel here, that the next thing was inevitable. The third guy was me. And how it did happen is I did a terror seminar in San Francisco, and Felipe told me, why we don't invite Mark to that seminar? And how we do that? So I said, simple, we are going to try eight wines blind in the seminar. Why we don't put chapter 24? So it's the perfect occasion for Mark to fly. And Mark Tarnoff came from New York to San Francisco to the seminar. So he listened to the seminar, everybody left, and Mark was sitting, looking at me, like staring at me. Uh, we got a beer together and said, Pedro, normally in one great day, I learn one thing. Today, I learn three. I would be very happy if we can collaborate in Oregon, blah, blah. So that's how it started. We became very good friends with Mark, very, very good friends. And Mark was so clever, so intuitive, so everything, you know, that we, we move so fast in chapter 24, so fast that we created Rose and Arrow, you know. So chapter 24 was not interest enough to continue because Rose and Arrow was so good. And, and that's what happened when you have a good terroir, you have a good owner, a good winemaker, eventually a good viticulturist on, on time. And the energy was high, you know, very, very high. So that's how I, I came to Oregon. And it was not easy in the way that the, the geology here is, is not uh, easy to read, you know, because it's a mix of things, you know, old volcanic rocks, younger floatings, you know, what people call sedimentary. But you get two names, basically. So when you go, you visit a winery, you say, what is your story? It's Jory. Okay, what that means? And uh, this is Jory. So what part of the Jory you have? No, I have Jory. So it's very different for everything that we're talking, the approach of viticulture to winemaker. And then they said, no, no, my vineyard is sedimentary. Sedimentary is a sediment. We can sediment wherever you want. We can have, we can sediment caca. <laughs> it's a sediment, you know? So it means nothing is sedimentary. So, okay, again, sedimentary, but uh, which one? You know? So they, that, that are very open questions because the variability on both important geologies is, is big, it's important, you know? And that is going to affect all the decisions that we were talking, you know, viticulture, rootstock, irrigation, dry farming, uh, yields, pruning, winer interpretation, you know? So, so how can you do, in, how can you interpret the problem if you don't understand the beginning, you know? The beginning is everything. So, and, and at the same time, what I learned is that the variability in the two main families, you know, the Johnsons and the Oakley, were, it was so big that we need to be very detailed. Precision is very important. Because when you are in, the wine is very good, but if you move one meter and you are out, it's very bad, you know? 
So it's very, Oregon in that way, it's like California as well, huh? it's very dramatic. The terroir can be very good, the next meter is very bad. And if you don't know that, your tank is going to be a mix from very good and very bad, so mediocre. So we, we had to be way more attentive, you know, more clever on precision and curiosity and everything, even now, you know. And so the challenge in the Oregon are very different, for example, from Burgundy. In Burgundy, you can be a little more gentle with precision because when you move from this limestone, you move to the other one, who is also very good. So it's not, Burgundy is never dramatic. So you have bad winemakers and the wines are good because the site is too strong, you know? Here, the site is strong, but needs more work, more precision, more, more observation, you know? So it's a challenge. And people in general uh, don't know that, basically. Because again, what's your terroir? It's Jory. Okay. Uh, and, and that's the real challenge for, for me in Oregon, and I think for other people as well. And, but when you do find the, 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 the good spot, the potentiality can be very high. Mm -hmm. The problem is that every time that you're not in a good spot, the wine is very bad. So what is the perception of Oregonian wines? It's, hmm, well, it can be good, you know. That is the international perception, even in New York, you know. So we need, as Oregonians, if I am an Oregonian now, <laughs> we need to work twice. So we, we, maybe it's not fair, but it's what we have, who we are, you know. So, so that is the, the thing. And the other situation that we have is that the, we have the, the, the two geologies, it's very interesting because basalt is like a fire. The rock is a burning rock. I mean, it's magma first, but it's a burning rock. And that creates big tannins, you know, hard, big, kind of burning tannins, which is not the Pinot Noir or Chardonnay mentality, you know, quality. And the sedimentary is the opposite. It's very fresh and needs maybe a touch of fire, you know, it's too fresh. So the typicity of sediment, when I'm talking very good basalt, very good sedimentary. The typicity in very good sedimentary I am, is very interesting, but needs a complete different approach in the winery and in, 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 the, in the viticulture. Basalt is the opposite. It's like music, you know? When you have a basalt reward, you need to equalize the music down. Everything you do is to bring the volume down because it can be too much volume. When you're on metamorphic, you need to tune up a little, you know, because, because the wines can be so low in energy that you may think that it's not a good wine. Mm -hmm. It's about details, you know, when, and when you understand that, that and you pick that, you, you realize, wow, it's, this is good. But 90% of the time, the tank is going to be to bulk wine or entry-level wine, because it's not fleshy, it's not sexy, you know? It's elegance. So <clears throat> when you understand that, you know that the potentiality can be very good. Uh, we have another situation, we have a lot of iron around here in Oregon, 
like in Chile as well, California. And iron can be a very dominant component of the wine. The wine will, will smell more iodine, bloody, like hospital, like dentist, you know, aluminum. So when you get the right Pinot Noir with iron and with a winemaking that is extractive, and sometimes with the whole clusters, blind is another Rhone Syrah. So this is my Pinot Noir, mm, it's a Syrah from the Rhone, you know. So, so again, it's the interpretation of the problem. So in Rose and Arrow, we work a lot on that, you know. We, we are all the time uh, trying our different tools to interpret you know, the sites more and more. Every year we're taking more risk. Sometimes risk can be dangerous because you can make a big mistake, but wine is about risk, so until you understand really. So that's, France is that. France, they were taking risks for 200 years. So now they cannot explain you why they do what they do, but they know what they do because of their grandfather, and the result is very good. Here, we don't know what we do. We're in the beginning. So, but if you have an imagination and, and you think Oregon in 100 years, it's going to be very good because it's going to, it's natural. It's going to little by little happen like that to a moment that's going to be very good. That takes time. So what we're doing in Rosenaro, we're buying time. We are moving faster. We have a Ferrari car. So we're driving super fast, but we are here. We're not yet here. That's on time. And I am so impressed about Chardonnay. I think, uh, so I, I love Chardonnay. I am a Chardonnay drinker. And I work in Merceau with a, a guy called Jomar Rouleau, who is like a rock star here in Oregon. And uh, so I, I do know well Chardonnay and, and minerality and tension and all these kind of things. And I am very convinced that the next Merceau or the next Pirinio or Chase in Oregon. It's here with Felipe and the Rosanaro. We did one Chardonnay, experimental. We selected the terroir very well. Felipe knows how to interpret Chardonnay because he worked with Jean Marc in Merceau. We tried the wine yesterday, and to me, it's by far the best Chardonnay from Oregon. Not near, by far. By far, like. Uh, 10 years by far. And it's an experiment. We don't even have volume to sell it, you know? So we know that experiment worked very well. But we did it when we were ready to do it. Took years, you know, to be ready to do it. Means we got the fruit from a vineyard that we know is good. And we have the winery set up for the Chardonnay, and we have the knowledge to interpret that because of Felipe's experience with Pierre Milman, Burgundy, Louis Michel, Burgundy, Jean-Marc, Burgundy. So when, when, you are, when you drink Chardonnay, good Chardonnay, you know what is a good Chardonnay, and you know how to interpret that, it's going to be good. And that was good. It was incredible, in fact. So that's, that's the challenge in Oregon, you know, and, and it's, it's a beautiful challenge, you know. I, Oregon, to me, is important. I mean, 
is one of the few places where I go for work and I feel I am not working. I am really enjoying, you know, my, my boss here, so Mark Tarloff in the beginning, Ian now, they're super cool. You know, it's, it's not because I am paying you that you need to be working, you know, I, I could not be here, for example, now. You are, I'm paying you, so you need to be in the winery. It's not like that, it's more philosophical, conceptual. I run my time. I need to deliver the results. I am very independent. I can do whatever I want when I am here, you know, uh, trying to improve the, the project. So I like to be here. The site, you know, is very much like my city in, in Chile, coastal, uh, cold weather, rainy weather. So it's not home, but I feel like home, you know. McMinnville is beautiful. Portland is beautiful. So I feel very happy here. So you mentioned earlier your own project, your own winemaking project, and kind of the, the trials and, and tribulations of that and the, and the way it's evolved. Tell me about uh, the wines you're producing now. Uh, what, what kind and what style of wine are you making? And, and what about them is it that, has you, that makes you happier than the earlier wines you made? I am. So I my... I mean, it was also difficult to me to make a project because I am difficult. I am a difficult guy. So uh, it was, if I'm going to do something, it should be something that I like to drink first. Then I will found the market. But it's something that I, I love to drink and something that I would be proud for my family in the future. And also was about, you know, something that should be good. You will be judged by your uh, other people, you know, about the quality. So it would be sad that if people drink the wine and say, hey, you should continue being a consultant, you know? That, that is sad. So that was a possibility, you know, of course. So I had to be very careful on selecting the terroir in Chile. So the country was very open. But in general, so I know my country very, very well. In general, um, there were no terroirs that were super appealing to me because everything was very, it's very sunny, more Californian, if you want. And I was looking for something more Burgundian or more Oregonian, and that is the south of Chile. So I am from the south. And, but in the south, nothing's developed, there's nothing. And there are vines, but pretty much for bulk wine, you know, so. And then I got to explore this area that is called Itata. It's about 45 minutes from home. And with the new eyes, you know. And the place is unique, it's incredible. It's like being in Barolo, but planting like Spain. Dry farm, never irrigation. There's no water for irrigate, so you cannot irrigate. So it's dry farm, cold weather, granitic soil, uh, coastal, very coastal, about uh, 10 miles from the ocean, planted by Spanish, you know, 500 years ago. So the tra this big tradition, but very local tradition. People, farm deep farmers, quite poor people, you know, people that have never been in Santiago, for example. So they, they they, they are fantastic viticulturists, but they don't produce great wine because they don't have to, because they sell everything local. 
So I fell in love with the place and I start to, to work there. Now the project is a good project, uh, very successful for me in terms of not money, but I, I feel complete, you know, I like the wines. Um, I sell the wines in, in many, many countries. It's normal, you know, as a consultant you get friends and through friends you get connections, so it's going to happen. And so the wines are always sold out, it's sold by allocation. The prices are good, very high prices for Chile. That is something also super weird, you know, what is very high-end price for Chile is entry level in California. At the same time, the cost is, I produce one case for 10% of the money that you will produce a case in California. So the profit is very interesting. So today the project is balanced. I could stop consulting all my clients and make a living of my project because it's doing well. The main market is US. US is a fantastic market for me. New York is an incredible market for me, but all around is very good uh, because it's, it's niche. So it goes, normally the buyer is a European palate trained sommelier, you know, who understand that. So it's very typical from Chile. And um, I get to know in time, you know, the sommelier community quite well in US. So, so that is a help for, for sales. But the market is also Canada, Europe, Japan, you know, it's, it's a little all around. Mm -hmm. So it's a tiny winery. I produce, I produce 5,000 cases, four to 5,000 cases, depending on the year, cases of, of 12. And, and I think the future is bright, you know. Mm -hmm. So now, my, my sons are starting to get, you know, adolescent, so it's 18 and 17, so maybe one of them is going to follow. They are, they seem to be interested, and maybe they can follow. And also I am starting a project here in Oregon. Uh, small, very small, but one, because I want to have one food in Oregon, uh, I like Oregon very much. I see the opportunity, you know, and it's, uh, it's a Chardonnay project. So it's the beginning, mm -hmm. so it's, it will be in the market maybe two years. But, and small, a small like uh, maybe 1,000 cases, something, you know, because I, if not, I should move to Oregon. It's not yet the <laughs> time, you know. But I think the potentiality is, is, is very, very high. Mm -hmm. So I yeah. am. And Chardonnay is one of my favorite grapes, you know. And so that is going to happen. So I have 2021, some cases, and I have 2022, other cases. The quality is, is good, it's very good. That's exciting, I hadn't, I hadn't realized that. Um, few people know that, <laughs> very few people know that. Breaking the news here today. Yeah. <clears throat> I'm curious, you, you mentioned earlier, as you were kind of getting started in Chile, 
that you were kind of you're breaking new ground there as a consultant, both kind of in terroir and then. Tell me how the industry in Chile has grown in the 20-ish years you've, you've been part of it and, and seen it grow. And obviously, I'm curious about the impact of, of, of the recent events, uh, the recent fires there this year. So Chile is a big animal. So to move something takes time, you know. So it's like a big, you know, Titanic. Mm -hmm. So of course, the, the work, not only my work, but some winemakers as well that were very innovative about that were for the last 20 years working hard so that that let's say that was the boat in Chile Chile was having not a bright future in in high quality wines always entry level mm -hmm. and we are moving now something like to that i think we are not yet there but we are moving in that direction the, the rise of Itata has been a major help on that, you know. The, the perception of the international community about Itata is great. So the problem is that what is happening is like Itata is like, a, I don't know, like a, another country in the country. So Itata is not Chile. Mm -hmm. I have a great one from Itata. From where? From Itata. What is Itata? Itata is in Itata. But you know it's in Chile. Mm, it's so in Chilean that Itata is Itata. So that's, of course, something that <laughs> for the Chilean industry is a problem. Because how is it possible that poor people from an abandoned place are selling the wines way better than we billionaires that we spend so much money on marketing? And it's funny because if you go and you look uh, in New York, for example, if you take the three, four best distributors, Polaner, Skernig, Bowler, Grand Cru, T.D. Edwards, that's that kind of people, you know, they don't bring Chile. So they don't sell in general Chile. Chile is not appealing. They do buy Itata. And because they do that, and if you go to the good restaurant, there's nothing from Chile in the list. But you do have Itata. So that is a contradiction, you know, and that is something that, that is, is, is great. So you have some places in the world that have that kind of energy. And you have Swarland in South Africa, you have uh, Sicily, Etna in Italy, you know. Uh, you have Gredos in Spain, or you have uh, Ribeiro in, in, in Galicia in Spain. Few places with that energy that is showing something, creating something. And in Oregon, Iola is Iola is the thing. The real thing is going to be Iola on time, you know. Uh, all the other places are good, but Iola is different. You know, it's not about being good, it's being different. So always you have these small spots of sight that create for the future something. Itata is part of that. So Itata is, of course, changing the perception. And then you have other regions with more artisanal producers coming with very good wine more and more. So there is a big switch in Chile between industrial wineries to artisanal wineries. And that switch is super good for everybody. It's super good, you know? So the country is, I was very pessimistic for many years, 
And I say now I'm neutral. Not optimistic, but at least I am neutral. Uh, I am not neutral for Itata. I am very optimistic for Itata on time. So that's number one. Number two, the fires, big fires, you know, like uh, here in the 20. Uh, the fires were all around. They were in Itata as well. Uh, but Itata, like here, like Oregon, you know, Itata has different places. So that was quite uh, dramatic because there were videos around, you know. But, but the truth is that the real, real fires were, were in one part of Itata. That is a very warm part of Itata, not the Grand Cru area of Itata. In the Grand Cru area, there was one fire. That fire was not big, or something. It was super big for the people who got burned. <laughs> but for the rest of Itata, was not really big. It's what, it was like a line, a mathematical vector, you know? That's, that's the fire, and then this was like the line that was burned. So when you are driving, it's dramatic, it's horrible, but that is the Grand Cru. So maybe, I don't know, three, five percent of Itata was, of the Grand Cru Itata was on the fire. So was, that was dramatic, super dramatic, because you never knew how I, I, I am lucky again, because the wind was blowing like this. If the wind blows like this, I get burned myself, my vineyards, you know? So I was lucky. And uh, now we are dealing with the potentiality smoke taint flavors. You never know, you know, after that happened, I start to talk like everybody that I know that has experience in the world about that. Like I did that NASA research, you know, like, like three weeks talking to many, many people. And we know nothing. Basically, everybody has an experience. Everybody has, so we, we, I learned some things, some facts about that, yet to be proved, you know. Some people told me, I did this, and I don't have the smoke taint, so very good result. Other guys did another thing, and they do have the smoke taint. Other people do, did nothing, and they don't have. Other people did a lot, and they have, so it's very random. So that brings up to me questions, you know, what I will do. So my harvest starts ne next week, so I'm flying out tomorrow. My team is there, so we, I, I, again, I am preparing like three different scenarios. So I, I will follow my guts, you know, on, on that. Because there are technologies that you can use, but every time that you use the technology, you lose a little quality. So one option is you go like everything's normal and you get the quality if you're lucky. Or you go, I don't feel it and I will use the technology from the beginning. So I will get something drinkable, but maybe not the potentiality. So I think a mix of scenarios can be prudent you know, for this year. I know you recently uh, published a book. Uh, tell us about how that came to be and how that's gone. So the book, <laughs> the book was made mostly for me, you know. It's, it's like um, my own memory or for my kids, you know, when I will be gone. It's, it was beautiful for me to do it because the book required to look on my past, you know, again, who I am. 
I, I had to see the Lord, you know, and think, what, where did I do that? Who was important, you know? And at the same time, the book was done for wine people who wants to understand more on terroir. So I did my best to write something more simple from something that is more difficult. So I, I use metaphors a lot, you know, to try to make it more appealing to people. So it is not easy to do because you are nobody as a writer. So when nobody knows you, you don't have access to a publisher. And if you don't have a publisher, it's difficult to do it. So I decided to do it 100% by myself. So I, I, I got some money to do it. I got some help from, from people that contribute to, to have some money to make it happen. I had to learn you know, how to use the software to design the book. So I designed the book by myself. Uh, many pictures are, are from me, other were donations from other people. So I am so lucky because it's a 100% product from home. There, there are mistakes on the books because, again, it was me, so I don't have money to have an editor to, to review that. I think it's great because when, when you will look back on time, the first edition will be special because of the mistakes, mm -hmm. you know. That's what creates on time value. It's me. Uh, I, you don't know how many copies print, you know, because you don't know what is going to happen. I print 4,000 copies, which to me seems to be a lot. And when you talk to people, it's a lot. It's a lot of copies. 3,000 were in English, 1,000 in Spanish. In Spanish, the book went sold out very fast. Spain was wah, like that. Uh, Chile and Argentina as well, but Spain was so big. And in English, we went, so we're not sold out, but we're not selling it. I mean, we, we are sold out of what we wanted to sell. We want to sell around 2,500 copies, only in US, because the book is sold through Rose and Arrow. Uh, so, but there's no promotion in the book. So I get many messages from, from every day from Instagram. Where can I buy your book? You know, Rose and Arrow, who is that, where, you know, so. That's, that's a problem, but it's a good problem for the first edition. We, I'm keeping 500 copies because COVID came and I never had the time to promote the book, like to sign something. So I think now maybe it's time to, you know, do a seminar in Oregon and in San Francisco, some, some cities, you will sell the book there, you know. Um, the rights from the book were bought by a company in France, in Burgundy. It's the best uh, wine bookstore to me in the world. It's called Ateneum. So they translate to French and they print 2,000 copies. So now it's in French. That is very important to me because that's going to end in, in good hands, you know. And now I'm talking to a guy in Brazil to make a Portuguese version. And I think when the time will come, so that means when, I'll be, when I will be with energy to do it again, because in the beginning it was taking too much energy, I'll do a second edition, maybe next year, you know. So a very, very successful project to me. And I have an idea of having a second book, you know, a second book that goes 
very deep into the mentality on terroir of a producer. Like to pick 10 guys, but pick the brain, you know. Pick the brain, the site, and the wine. That is a book that has not been done in the world. And that would be very funny to do it, you know. So maybe we're going to do that in the future. So the book, super funny. And I should ask the title of the book. So Footprints is one of the best tunes from a fantastic jazz composer and saxophonist who passed away last week, Wayne Shorter. Mm -hmm. So Wayne Shorter created many tunes, but Footprints was fantastic one played by the, quintet, the second quintet from Miles Davis. So I wanted to use the, the word Footprints, you know. And uh, when I was young and playing, we used to play Footprints and we played decently. So terror Footprints, like, you know, seems to me metaphoric again and romantic. To me, very personal to me, you know. Again, the book is very personal to me. Again, it's like the wine. It's important that I like the wine, to sell it well. It's important that I like the book and people will follow, you know. It's not made for the, if you want to make it for the market, you do it in, an, in another way. All right, last question for you is what's next? What's on, what's on the horizon for you? <laughs> it's difficult, but yesterday we were discussing about that, you know. Um, I normally, I, I am an organized person somehow, so <laughs> I, I, I do try to think in the next 10 years, you know. To not get bored, I mean, I want to have energy in the next 10 years to be a, again, happy guy. So consulting will go low, for sure. So I will keep, every year is lower and lower. So I keep the most funny clients, basically. And my relation with the clients is longer. So it's not anymore two years, three years. It's longer because we grow together, like Rose and Arrow is now 2015, 2023. That is something. The second thing to me is the book, the next book. 24, 25, I don't know when. Mm -hmm. Consolidate my Chilean project. So one thing is to make something good, sell it well. The next step is to consolidate that, to become like a classic, you know. So how many classic wineries you have in Oregon, for example? I don't know, Christian, for example, looks like a classic to me. I want to consolidate that, like Chile. What is Chile? Ah, Pedro Barre, Familia is classic. You need time for that, a quality. The Chardonnay parade here is important to me. So I want to keep it small. I like it small very much, light and small. But I think uh, it's going to be groundbreaking. The quality of the wine is, is high, it's very high. But to do that, you know, I need to be more present in Oregon. So I need I'm organizing myself to do that. Um, and, and so in the next 10 years, that Chardonnay project is important in my head, you know. Because it's my food in the US, my daughter loves Oregon, loves wine, so maybe she will be helping me someday. So that's it. So less consulting, funny consulting, 
Itata, Oregon Chardonnay, another book. Drinking, eating, enjoying life as much. Life is short, you know. Life is so short. So, so every day is. I try to take it, you know, at the maximum. That that is it. Traveling less. Uh, at one moment, I was traveling too much, you know, and I realized that uh, every time you take a plane, is you lose three days basically, and so you take ten times. That is thirty days. So basically, you are when you're working like me and you travel too much, 30 days of the year are dead. It's in a plane or airport. So when you realize that, you say something's wrong. I, I, I won't give to my life. I won't lose to my life. You know, one month per year. In 10 years, it's one year. One year that you are not living with your wife or your friends or whatever. So that's oh, now I try to I travel way less and longer. So now this trip was Australia, California, Oregon, Mendoza would be in two days, harvest, you know. So it's twenty days of travel. But I will do that four times in the year and it's done, you know, finish. So enjoy life in the next ten years if, if I can. So that's the, the goal. Excellent. Well, that's all the questions that I have. Uh, is there anything I didn't ask that I should have? Anything that we didn't cover that you'd like to cover here today? No, I think that was pretty much uh, a funny interview for me. You know? Excellent. Good. Thank you for us as well very much. Thank you so much for taking the time for making this happen here today. Thank you again to the Atticus for the use of their space. It's and not snowing anymore. The snow has now stopped, so it's time to end right. the interview. Thank that's you right. so much. We'll let you off the hook. Thank you, Rich. Thank you. It was fun. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University with a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.